turn now uh, to our reading for this evening. It's continuing on in our series on Luke, and tonight we're looking at chapter 10, starting at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, 
and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. By and large, I am a person of convention. You may disagree with me. Um, And ordinarily, if I'm preaching, those of you who know me well, will will know that I like to have traditional three points in a sermon. It just feels right. But uh, tonight I'm throwing caution to the wind, and I'm going for four. Um, Although having said that, um, they do sort of go in pairs, which seems appropriate in the light of this passage to uh, go in twos um, when Christ's anointed go themselves out in twos. So perhaps on this occasion, uh, you might forgive me. All right. For those of you uh, taking notes, I'll give you the first two points in, in, as a double whammy. The first two points are commission and consequences. Commission and consequences. We read uh, in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Jesus appoints uh, 72 others. Um, whilst the sending out of the 12 apostles can be found in other gospels, interestingly, this commissioning is unique to Luke. There are a few things that need to be said here. Uh, firstly, significance of the number. Now, what we have in the NIV here, it says 72. Interestingly, from um, you'll see probably in your footnotes, those of you who've got your Bibles open, um, and certainly in my one at home, that uh, you have a footnote that says that some manuscripts say 70. It's quite, it seems quite interchangeable, 70, 72. I'll stick with a 70 for, for the rest of this. And it would seem it's not an uncommon variation. And 70 is a number not without significance and meaning. And I believe that just as Jesus was aware when uh, he sent out the 12 in chapter 9 that he was linking these 12 with those of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. So now we have 70, a number strongly and primarily echoing the number of elders who shared in Moses' ministry. We find this in uh, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 11, verse 16, where we read, The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70, or in some cases 72, of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Make them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. The Sanhedrin at the time of Jesus would also number this in the same way. The council of uh, priests and scribes and elders were of this number on the assumption that they were the successors of those whom Moses had chosen. Uh, Jesus now sets apart 70 as those guided perhaps not by the traditions of men, but by direct inspiration of their Saviour and the Holy Spirit to point others to him. It needs to be said that um, it says some scholars, though refuted, as I say, it has to be said by some, such as um, Mayer, though if you, some of you may have heard of him, argue that for the Jews, 70 had come to represent all the nations of the world. Um, so therefore, potentially, arguably, we also have Christ hinting at the universality of the Church of Christ. I'll leave that one with you to reflect on and ask Tim. Either way, from this point on, 
Jesus is working his way south-ish towards Jerusalem, towards his ultimate and inevitable purpose. Time is of the essence, and clearly the apostles are not to have a monopoly on a sending out commission. Others, as it says in verse 1, are to be sent out. The book of Acts, we think, refers to these others in its first chapter, in verse 15, where we read, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. I'm pretty sure, if I'm honest, I imagine Jesus, this is up until very recently, I imagine Jesus sort of wandering around doing his ministry with pretty much just the twelve and a few extras, you know, Mary Magdalene, you know, those sorts of folk. And on occasion, he would meet with a crowd and do something rather wow and inspirational, but for the most part, just to be with a small group. But it's clear, actually, from this passage that in Luke, that there is actually a significant number already following Jesus at this point, from which 70 could be chosen. I never really noticed that before. I don't know about you. Once again, it would seem I have underestimated Jesus. As uh, with the disciples in chapter 9, as I referred to earlier, they go out in twos, as described in verse 1. Well, why? For fairly obvious reasons and probably similar for the disciples. Firstly, for the practical need for strength, support, encouragement, companionship. But secondly, perhaps for accountability. Uh, so that they are less inclined to uh, credit themselves with success, should it happen. And thirdly, so that the community that they seek to extend is embodied by those that first share the good news of Jesus. Their commission is to go ahead of Jesus and prepare those that Jesus will meet. But this is to be done prayerfully. Jesus said, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It is for the Lord of the harvest that they go out. This prayer reminds them that their mission is God's initiative and not their own. And also affirms that they must not only go out prayerfully, but go on being prayerful they need to continue to ask and rely on God to focus their minds on the task in hand to help with this they are to travel light to not take a purse or bag or sandals and not greet anyone on the road they are to be single-minded and not distracted if they are to fulfil their commission. Verses 5 to 11 tell us more about how this commission is to be carried out. Verse 5 says that their approach is to be one of peace. They are to eat and drink whatever they are given. Sorry, I just had a flash of my children not doing that. They are to eat and drink whatever they are given. Verse 7 and 8. And they're not to have any airs and graces 
quite simply to be grateful for what they're offered. Potentially, this even extended to eating that which was not clean according to Jewish law. Clearly, sharing the gospel is about embodying Christ's humility and servant heart. Not worrying about things that can be sorted and not caring about things that, quite frankly, don't really matter. They are to reflect Jesus and his ministry. Verse 9, they are told to heal the sick and tell them that the kingdom of God is near. They are to have a regard for both the practical and spiritual needs of those they meet. Jesus also prepares those he is sending out for the challenge ahead. He himself has recently been rejected. He knows what it feels like. He knows that it hurts. The 70 will also face rejection. They are to know that when they do so, those that do the rejecting are are actually hurting themselves in the long run. So what should they do? Luke records in verse 10 that they should enter a town. When they enter a town that's, uh, at which they're not welcomed, they should go into the streets and say, even the dust of the town that sticks to their feet, we wipe off against you. It's rather dramatic action. But via this symbolic act, the people will appreciate that they are actively turning Christ down. The 17 must ensure that the people who do not welcome Jesus are consciously aware of the choice they are making. It gives them an opportunity to rethink. For the ultimate consequences for their choice is to turn away life in all its fullness and accept a similar fate of those who also chose to go their own way in the city of Sodom, who ultimately as we know, were destroyed. So the commission has been given, but what of its pairing? What of the second C? I can't stray too far away from being conventional. What of the second C? Consequence. Jesus has already indicated that the consequences shall be dire. Northern cities are a known point of reference to the reader. I've cited Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, verse 13. They're all lamented. Tyre and Sidon are interestingly mentioned in verse 14. And these were cities frequently mentioned and featured in prophecies as a, a symbol of resistance to the people of God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel and others all reference Tyre and Sidon rather negatively. Um, It was not good to be compared to such cities. For their end was destruction. And to be told the northern cities of Karazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are worse because they have been even more stubborn than Tyre and Sidon, well, it should make clear that the stakes are actually exceedingly high. So the 70 know their commission and the consequences for those that do not listen, outlined in verse 16. And so now we turn more happily to the next of our two points, both of which 
may or may not be happy to know that start with R. Returning and remember. The 70 return from their single missionary tour and they return in joy. Just joy. They come not complaining, as I probably would have done, of fatigue, opposition and discouragement, but in joy. In verse 17, we read that they returned with joy, exclaiming that even the demons submitted to them in Jesus' name. You can just hear their excitement. They're fizzing about what's happened, and they're so joyful about it. It's an indication of the kingdom experience that they've had. Jesus then gives us imagery of Satan falling and of trampled snakes and scorpions. The power of evil has been subjugated. Interestingly, Jesus says to them in verse 19 that um, nothing will harm you. Now, personally, I don't believe that this is an indication that true followers of Christ are free from pain and suffering. Ideas like that have given rise to rather cultish um, practices of using snakes and such like in worship. That's not what we've got going on here. We must remember that it is through Christ's suffering that we are set free. Whatever happens, good or ill, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In that sense, we are free from harm. Christ's authority comes from his integrity, inner truth, and his constant responsiveness to the will of God. The disciples' authority was sourced from the risen Christ. and They're developing integrity and inner truth as well as their closeness with Christ. The 70 have been able to share in Christ's authority over evil. What an amazing privilege. A word of warning sort of closes this rather happy section. It, it amounts to a pride before a fall moment. Verse 20 reads, However, Jesus says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus gently refocuses them. And uh, John McKinnon writes, their joy was not to lie in their authority over spirits, but in the experience of their present and future intimacy with God. It was there that their joy should lie, not in anything that they might have done, but in the experience of their present and future intimacy with God. The next verse, it really struck me, and having researched it some, I understand now why. The verse is uh, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. It is apparently the only place where Jesus' joy is explicitly recorded. Please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I think that's what struck me, that I, you don't often see Jesus' joy actually Note it. And I think it is no coincidence that it is when those he has sent out return to him with joy 
having experienced the extension of God's kingdom. And it's then that Jesus' joy is recorded. Finally, we turn to our final R, remembering. Having returned, the 70 must now remember. Those of you present um, who are fathers, you will know that a father and a child relationship, it's unique. Only the two of you within that relationship truly know what it is to be in that relationship. In verse 22, Jesus is showing that he is willing to share that understanding. Not through words or clever concepts, but intimate experience. He says, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows who the son is except the father. And no one knows the father except the son It's quite exclusive. But importantly, it says then, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. I do take heart from this, as just in verse 21, Jesus has explained that he does not reveal the things of the gospel to the wise, thank goodness, and prudent, the clever and revered, to kings and prophets but to little children. Similarly, we read when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So Christ thanks his Father, as what was once hidden is now being made known. And the 70 are to remember what a privilege it is to be his little children that can share in this wonderful and intimate experience of knowing God as Father. There's so much here that we can be applying to ourselves. And I suspect I will miss things. But we too are called to, as you know, our great commission. We too are told, go. And like them, as McLaren writes, an overmastering impulse is always needed to overcome human reluctance and laziness. I think if you know, if you're not told, sometimes we just don't do it, even if it is the right thing. But we have, we have been told, we have been given a commission to go and tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we say, as we have been singing this evening, that Jesus is our Lord, then we must obey. And that goes for leaving the baggage behind. All too often, I think, we drag it around with us. And it keeps us from pressing on 
with where God would lead us? And what's the baggage you need to leave behind if you're to be obedient to God's calling? We do not go alone. We are a family here. We are to support one another, encourage each other, be there for each other. Not least to remind each other not to be distracted from our task. Again, anyone who knows me knows how easily distracted I am. Quite frankly, most tasks, it's a bit shameful really. But let's help one another in our own commission to make Christ known in our community. Well, as for consequences, well, hearing of those cities should make our mission all the more imperative. If you're hearing in all honesty, you wouldn't say Jesus is your saviour. Can I encourage you to think again? Ask questions, find out who he is. And don't let this opportunity this evening to know Jesus slip through your fingers. Returning the 70 new great joy. We too can have an insight into that deep joy that comes only from knowing Jesus and sharing his peace with others. It takes courage and trust in him who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's okay, you don't need the baggage, for he has all you need. When we do his work of meeting the practical and spiritual needs of those we meet, we share the peace and love of Christ, and deep joy can be in our hearts and on our lips. Remember, like the 70, as McKinnon wrote, to be a disciple is to be truly blessed. Luke invited the members of his community to live with an awareness of their privileged situation. We too are truly blessed. We've been invited to know the Father as his child. That Christ died for me, died for you, so that we might know his Father, unimpeded by our wrongdoing, so that ultimately our joy may be complete when we meet him face to face.